0: Well, welcome to Michael and Us, I'm Will Sloan, here as always with...
1: Luke Savage, welcome back everyone.
0: A lot has happened since we last recorded. Uh, We're recording this episode on the afternoon of Wednesday, October eighteenth. I mention that because, as you know, the news is moving very fast, so anything can have happened by the evening, by tomorrow, or whenever this comes out. I think I might just start by saying, I don't know how you feel, Luke. The last two weeks have been one of the most politically clarifying times of my life, maybe the most politically clarifying. Um, Obviously. Don't need to tell people the abject horror that we've seen. But uh, in addition to what's happening in Gaza, the response from the Western leaders, from our leaders, you know, if you're an American listener or a British listener, from your leaders, I'm hesitant to be hyperbolic, but I can't think of anything I've seen in my lifetime that's been quite as clarifying about, you know, what the true priorities, the true commitments of the liberal leaders. The
1: rules-based international order that we're so constantly told exists. Yeah. So the liberal leaders... it is the basis for, you know, the moral credibility of Western liberal democracies when they orient themselves throughout the world.
0: Culminating with yesterday, the bombing of the Al-Ali hospital, which the campaign of obfuscation around that, up to and including Joe Biden in Israel today saying, oh God, what what did he say? Like, oh, from, from everything I've seen, it uh, looks like it was, it was the other team. I mean, they can't even, it's so cynical. It's just right in front of us. It's a true mask off moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, we don't know 100% what happened here, but suffice it to say, I mean, it does seem very unlikely given the details surrounding what happened at the hospital that the you know official story uh, offered of you know a rocket that misfired uh, is true in fact of, of all places there was some very good reporting on this uh, on MSNBC yesterday which i think is probably a pretty good template for how this kind of thing should be reported
2: well this is an absolutely classic fog of war situation and we should be really clear NBC News is not able to get into Gaza right now. The Israeli border is sealed. The Egyptian border is sealed. Our teams are not able to get there and to verify this directly. We should also say that the Israeli military, at this point, is not providing any evidence to back up its claims that this was a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket. They are citing intelligence that they have not yet made public. We should also say that this kind of death toll is not what you normally associate with Palestinian rockets. These rockets are dangerous, they are deadly. They do not tend to kill hundreds of people in a single strike in the way that Israeli high explosives, especially these bunker buster bombs that are used to target these Hamas tunnels under Gaza City, have the potential to kill hundreds of people and we should say finally that there are instances in the past where the israeli military has said things in the immediate aftermath of an incident that have turned out not to be true in the long run and the one example i'll give you is that when the al jazeera journalist shireen abu akhle was killed in the occupied west bank the israeli military initially said that she was killed by palestinian gunmen and it was only months and months later. That they admitted that it was likely an Israeli soldier who fired the fatal shot.
1: But well, to return to something you said earlier about the past several weeks being a clarifying moment for you. I mean, I'm by no means the first person to make this point, but in our lifetimes, I mean, the you know the what, what the past few weeks and you know the various meta discourses have reminded me the most of is, of course, the uh, weeks and months following the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York. September 11th, 2001. And I mean, you know, one shouldn't exaggerate uh, the parallels, although there are certainly parallels between, you know, the the two instigating uh, incidents, you know, in the case of what happened in New York, the horrific uh, destruction of uh, the World Trade Center and the, uh, the attacks elsewhere throughout the United States. And in the case of several weeks ago, this gruesome attack by Hamas on southern Israel, when things like this happen... There is, you know, a climate of, you know, understandably of fear and confusion and anxiety. And very uh, frequently what happens is jingoism steps in and, and fills the void. And so, you know, I mean, I absolutely couldn't believe perhaps you saw one of yesterday's main characters, Will, you know, <laughs> tweeting out a photo of, of the World Trade Center burning and saying, after 9-11, did anybody ask America to show restraint? Did anybody at you know, just a list of things like that. And of course, lots of people including myself, you know, made the very obvious point that, uh, well, yes, actually, uh, there were lots of courageous people who dissented from the climate of jingoism after the attacks on the World Trade Center. And thank Christ, they were ignored. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I mean, the, you know, uh, trajectory events after September 11th, 2001, they're the template not to follow. If the, you know, few voices of dissent in the US media and in you know the global media uh, had had been listened to the world would be a much less dangerous place today and, and innumerable people who are dead would would still be alive but yes it does feel like since uh, the Hamas attack in Israel we have kind of been living through a, an accelerated version of that post 9/11 discourse or some you know uh, you know modern day version of it And I mean, the fact that, you know, the the scenes we're witnessing now, I mean, the total siege of Gaza, which, you know, has been effectively under siege, under blockade for 16 years, the order of a quote unquote evacuation of over a million people from uh, the north part of the Gaza Strip, which I mean, ordering an evacuation... You know, you got to you got to use the word in scare quotes, because this is already one of the most densely populated parts of the world. And I mean, there's there's nowhere for people to go, right? I mean, this idea of, oh, well, people can go to the Egyptian border. Well, it may be that some aid will get in through Egypt. But, you know, Egypt is a is a dictatorship and it's not likely to take an influx. You know, it's not going to take a million Palestinian refugees.
0: Or, you know, they can sit on the street in South Gaza and wait for this all to blow over.
1: Right. I mean, it's just the whole thing is completely ridiculous. And, you know, we, we will get to our movie shortly. But just as an additional point, I mean, I will say that the the fact that this is something that, you know, if you are uh, most of our listeners anyway, probably your government has provided at least some diplomatic support, some kind of re- uh, rhetorical support, at least, to Cutting an area off, you know, 2.2, 2.3 million people, half of them children, uh, you know, basic supplies and launching airstrikes while being, you know, fairly explicit about the reasons for doing so. But our governments and, you know, much of our media class thus far, with some uh, notable exceptions, have gone along with this. And, you know, it's only in the past few days that we've seen sort of the beginnings of, oh, well, maybe there should be a ceasefire, maybe maybe aid should be allowed in. It feels astonishing that we're even having this conversation. But I think that simply speaks to the way Palestinian people have been constantly erased Constantly ignored, constantly denigrated... I mean, to the point where, you know, many of the sort of replacement-level columnists who populate various op-ed pages, for example, seem incapable of seeing Palestinians as people who have equal moral weight. I want to quote something here uh, from a recent piece by Owen Jones. Uh, Owen writes, "'What value a Palestinian civilian life?' For Britain's political establishment, the answer is precious little. Revulsion at the slaughter of Israeli civilians, partygoers, kibbutzniks, children, elderly people— at the hands of Hamas, is a moral imperative. Tragic, then, that the righteous consensus over the sanctity of life ends at Israel's borders, both the conservative government and labor opposition have become supporters of wanton violations of the Geneva Conventions, war crimes, and ethnic cleansing. So I'm sure that we will be saying more about this, as Will said off the top. Obviously, events are moving very quickly. Like many of you, I mean, we are uh, we're both following them. I think that's uh, about all I have to say before we get to our movie. But we did want to uh, just say a few words about recent events in the world, uh, off the top of this one.
0: Well, I have a few more things I want to say. Uh, No no hot takes here. Like most of you listening, I'm sure Luke and I have been watching this play out through social media, which has been a decidedly mixed blessing. I obviously don't need to tell you folks about all the downsides, uh, the misinformation, the obfuscation, the Amy Schumer Instagram posts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What I will say is that it has been valuable this past 2 weeks to see so much uncensored footage and reportage from Gaza, as well as the sort of sense one feels of a global community of solidarity with the palestinians and the people of gaza i'm not saying this as like silver lining or anything there is no silver lining here but it has been heartening to see all the protests around the world all the people donating heartening to get the sense that millions of people myself included have a better understanding of what netanyahu's israel really is and what life in gaza is really like If it was just CNN and the New York Times, like it was 20 years ago, uh, it would be a very different last two weeks. Also, I mean, this this is definitely not a, a sentiment of comfort, except that there can be some comfort in reality. I'm sure you've all shared our horror and disgust at how the Western democracies have given Israel essentially carte blanche to do anything without consequences. It's been disorienting these past two weeks, this sense from the political and media classes that, you know, up is down, up is actually down, and it's incredibly wrong of you to say that down is down. You know, who are you going to believe, us or your lying eyes? Like, when you let a country just unleash white phosphorus gas, when you aid and abet and even fund this kind of mass slaughter of innocence, it means something, and it does change the world.
1: Ariel Angel, the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents, wrote something I thought was very powerful. She ends this piece by saying, One of the most terrible things about this event is the sense of its inevitability. Many have struggled with the straitjacket of this inevitability, straining to articulate that its recognition does not mean its embrace. I am reminding myself that it was from Palestinians, many of them writing and speaking in these pages, that I learned to think of Palestine as a site of possibility, a place for the very idea of the nation-state, which has so harmed both peoples, could be re- made or destroyed entirely. And it was Palestinians who opened my thinking to multiple visions of sharing the land. On the left, I hope we do not escape the inevitability of the violence for an inescapable limit on our work or the quality of our thought. Even if our dreams for better have failed, they must accompany us through this moment to the other side. We need to imagine a movement for liberation better even than the exodus, an exodus where neither people has to leave, where people stay to pick up the pieces, rearranging themselves not just as Jews or Palestinians, but as anti-fascists and workers and artists. I want what Puerto Rican Jewish poet and activist Aurora Levins Morales described in her poem, Red Sea, quote, We cannot cross until we carry each other, all of us refugees, all of us prophets, no more taking turns on history's wheel, trying to collect old debts no one can pay. The sea will not open that way. This time that country is what we promise each other, our rage pressed cheek to cheek until tears flood the space between, until there are no enemies left, because this time no one will be left to drown. And all of us must be chosen, this time it's all of us or none."
0: Well, on this episode, we wanted to talk about a movie by a Palestinian filmmaker. Palestinian cinema is a subject on which I am unschooled.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's an omission in our part that uh, we haven't discussed Palestinian cinema on this show to date. And in debating what to uh, what to watch and discuss this week. We ultimately decided that, in a you know non didactic way, uh, we just like to uh, celebrate a Palestinian filmmaker and this uh, acclaimed 2019 film uh, written and directed and starring Elias Suleiman. It must be heaven. Seemed like a perfect candidate.
0: Yeah, I mean, it must be said that when one looks at the lists of you know Google it now the top 20 Palestinian films, as is often the case with films by people facing oppression, the lists of acclaimed movies.
1: Well, they often involve oppression.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's not to say that this movie doesn't involve it. Uh, I think it's there sort of ambiently. But we wanted to do something that wasn't quite on the nose. We wanted to celebrate the vision and humanity of a Palestinian filmmaker.
1: Yeah, and I have to say, just, uh, you know, we, the the film we did for our Patreon episode was a film by uh, Alexandra Pelosi, the documentary filmmaker, who is uh, the daughter of one Nancy Pelosi. And uh, I mean, this, this film is just... So gentle and so beautiful, such a tour de force of visual craft and and comedy. Uh, It was just kind of like a bomb after watching, you know, the second movie in a year that Alexandra Pelosi has made about January 6th.
0: Well, the official one-sentence synopsis of It Must Be Heaven is, Filmmaker Ilya Suleiman travels to different cities and finds unexpected parallels to his homeland of Palestine. That is more or less the complete plot, uh, but it's also not entirely accurate because the parallels are implicit rather than explicit. Suleiman has often been called the Jacques Tati or Buster Keaton of Palestine. Tati is probably the more accurate comparison. Uh, He he stars as himself in this film, and he's a very Monsieur Hulot type passive observer.
1: We should probably explain a little bit, just because this film is so indebted to Jacques Tati, films like Playtime, which we'll definitely do an episode on at some point, great movie, or Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. When when we talk about a Mr. Hulot like figure, Will, what exactly are we talking about?
0: Hugh Hulot was the character that Jacques Tati played in all of his films, or most of them anyway. A sort of uh, lightly bumbling everyman, guy with a raincoat and an umbrella and a hat, just kind of uh, muddling through life. Not really an aggressively slapsticky character. But an everyman, and in the Jacques Tati films, Hulot is typically caught between tradition and modernity, which is one of our favorite themes here on <laughs> this podcast.
1: We're, we often find ourselves caught between those things. It seems to me
0: he's often in a Paris that is in the middle of you know violent modernization.
1: Yeah, and and Monsieur Hulot he always just sort of observes things. He he never speaks. I guess I think that's accurate. Yeah, and uh, Elias Suleiman in this film does not speak either he merely observes and uh, a lot of funny stuff happens around him
0: Elias <laughs> Suleiman was born in Nazareth Israel to a Palestinian family I don't know a lot about him but I understand he grew up lower middle class maybe maybe a little lower than that he spent 10 years in New York City from 1982 to 1993
1: worth saying, just a quick point of information, that, you know, Nazareth, as I understand it, is sort of informally known as the Arab capital of Israel, because I believe a a majority of its inhabitants are of Arab or Palestinian descent.
0: Now, I have an article here from Haaretz called Why Ilya Suleiman Doesn't Want to be Called the Leading Palestinian Filmmaker. Worth noting that Suleiman probably is the most famous active Palestinian auteur. His films, including this one, are often at the Cannes Film Festival. He doesn't give a lot of interest. But in this Heretz article, he's talking about why he lives in Paris now. And he says, It's not like I decided to leave Israel. I have left Israel since I was born. It doesn't exist in my dictionary to consider staying in a country I don't belong to. I mean, the only people I know who stay do so because they have no other option. I have the privilege of traveling. I don't cater to Israel at all. This movie, in which he stars as a version of himself, unfolds in three countries. It begins in Nazareth before moving to Paris and then New York. And all three locations are kind of slightly heightened versions of the real thing. You know, they're shot on, it's shot on location, but through that kind of Jacques Tati lens where everything is just a little bit absurd.
1: Yeah, the film opens with what what appears to be a, a Greek Orthodox procession in Nazareth. And I believe Suleiman, his background, uh, somewhere down the line was Greek Orthodox, but there's this very funny scene where, you know, it's the end kind of sets the tone for the rest of the movie. There's this very, very solemn procession and this kind of Greek Orthodox chant about Christ going on, and then when the priest who's leading the procession gets to a door within the church or chapel that he wants to take the procession through, the procession is interrupted because, for some reason, the clowns on the other side don't want to open the door, and so the demeanor of the priest kind of breaks instantly, and he's kind of starts whispering little threats to these un- unseen figures behind the door. And then he goes over to a side door and he says, you know, Lord, forgive me, kicks down the door. And then, you know, the camera goes back to the main door and it opens up just to show the priest's very, very angry face. And then the solemnity of the procession resumes. The comedic timing of this and kind of the tonal shifts, all very well done. Uh, And as I said, sets the tone for the rest of the movie, because there's a lot of comedy along these lines.
0: Like Tati or Keaton, he's very much a visual stylist the film is shot in widescreen and he makes creative use of the scope frame there's a lot of humor in just the compositions where people are in relation to each other in every frame it's often these static shots that bodies kind of wander through in the opening nazareth section it's lightly comic but certain sinister undercurrents are introduced the police are this kind of all pervasive presence there's a, a funny but vaguely sinister scene where there are these two police officers by their car and there's this guy you know sitting on a bench in front of them and then he wanders to the other side of the frame and starts pissing in public and the police pull out their binoculars yeah, they're like and start...
1: seven feet away and they're like observing him through binoculars three of them
0: and you know then you
1: watch you watch the guy
0: finish up and then wander from right to left of this very <laughs> wide frame as, as their binoculars follow him and then they follow him uh, later, when Suleiman is presumably driving to the airport, he passes a car where there are what I think are police in the front seat.
1: It's Yeah, it's police. Then there's just somebody blindfolded in the back, a woman. It's really not clear what's going on at all. But
0: they're in the front kind of checking out their sunglasses in the rearview mirror.
1: Yeah, in every city uh, or location he visits uh, in this film, there are police and they all tend to be uh, shot in this, yeah, very Jacques Tati-esque kind of way where they are these sort of automaton bureaucrats. You know, in Paris, there's a very funny scene where, you know, he's arrived in Paris and he's looking out his hotel room window. And this guy just inexplicably runs by with like a bouquet of roses and throws them, des- you know, desperately underneath a car and then runs away.
0: A very loaded image, by the way, a guy running past a car, throwing something, something underneath, underneath and running away. Yeah,
1: but it's roses. And then these three French, you know, gendarmes drive up absolutely parallel at high speed on these stupid looking little like segways, And then they just kind of buzz around the car for a minute and then drive off like a like a ballet yeah yeah both very funny but also kind of quietly menacing as well well they're always watching you they're always just out of frame
0: again the official plot synopsis says that he sort of sees the similarities between these cities and Palestine and and that's not explicitly ever stated it's always sort of left to the viewer to understand what the images mean when he's sort of wandering the streets of Paris which by the way is a very sparsely populated Paris He looks up and he sees an air show of military planes. It looks
1: like there's a kind of a Bastille Day uh, celebration happening, which is possibly why so much of Paris seems empty. He looks to his left and he
0: sees this military procession just going past the sliver between the buildings. There's also a scene where we see a woman on a subway platform just walking again from the extreme right of the frame to the extreme left. And a group of, what, a half dozen police officers just very, very quietly following her in in formation as she moves each step. Another scene in front of a fountain where it's a kind of game of musical chairs over uh, who gets to sit in the chairs by the fountain. What do you think uh, the the little bird in this section
1: symbolizes? (laughs) Uh, I don't know, but it's really, really funny. I mean, I know what the bird symbolizes. The bird is another citizen of the world. The bird is in search of place and is sort of not really fitting in wherever it goes. Which is, you know, what, what happens to Suleiman uh, throughout the film as well. I mean, the scene where uh, he's trying to type... This this scene is like a Jerry
0: Lewis scene. It's up there with the best of his stuff. Just tour de force.
1: If we can find a YouTube link to just the scene, we'll uh, we'll include it because it's really, really funny. But yeah, he's basically trying to type away. The sort of nominal purpose of his journey around the world is to, I guess, get funding uh, of some kind for the film itself or for a film with the same name. And so he's typing away at a MacBook and this little bird bird i mean was this a stunt bird because if so it deserves to win an oscar for I, ke- Best I kept stunt wondering bird. if it was
0: cgi it but real it, i to don't me. i don't think it was
1: yeah, i mean yeah. it just with perfect timing like first he's just typing away and the bird just keeps coming back onto the keyboard and he whisks it away and then just like the pacing of it is so perfect it just keeps outsmarting him before finally he just points to the window and is kind of like okay now get out Anyway, there are a few more political scenes. I mean, there are a lot of scenes in this movie. There are a lot of little encounters. I mean, so many that I don't think we need to describe uh, all of them. Many are never kind of followed up. They're just, you know, these these charming little vignettes that really need to be seen, I think, rather than described. But I think one of my favorite touches in the movie was there's a sort of motif where I guess across, you know, across the street from his hotel, he's looking across the road into a neighboring building that is, you know, some kind of fashion studio or, or, you know, studio where, you know, garments are being made. And there's a screen in the studio that just seems to be playing Paris Fashion Week on a loop. And the first time or two that this appears, I wasn't really quite sure exactly what the point was. And then on the final time, the lights get turned on in the studio and you see there are some, you know, janitors and they're just uh, these ladies who are going around kind of dusting things, cleaning, you know, one of them kind of just dusts the screen without really sort of having any reverence for, you know, what she's seeing. And I don't know, I just thought this was a very, you know, softly powerful little uh, juxtaposition. You know, Paris Fashion Week is being screened in this place of work. But, you know, around it, um, there's just members of the laboring class who are alienated from their surroundings. And, you know, the film's able to convey that just with some very simple imagery. I think, you know, one, one of the most effective uh, little moments in the film, this one. There's also an encounter uh, that Suleiman has with some kind of, you know, French film company, uh, where, again, you know, he's there to pitch them uh, his movie. And, you know, the guy behind the counter is sort of explaining, you know, look, we like your film. We like this. Uh, but, you know... Uh, We want to support the Palestinian cause. And, you know, the thing about your film is that it it could sort of take place anywhere. All that stuff could happen anywhere. So we don't really think this is for us. And then he's just kind of kind of shown the door. As for other directly
0: political scenes, there are a few more when he goes to New York. For example, when he's being driven from the airport to his hotel in a cab, the black cab driver, upon learning that he's Palestinian, halts the car and is just so excited to have a Palestinian in the back of his cab. He's never seen one before. The ride's on him. The next scene, we see him buying groceries at just a a Brooklyn, you know, Whole Foods type (laughs) store. And the woman at the counter has like, you know, this is kind of the the most heavy duty comedy of the film.
1: And this, by the way, this did not remind me of Jacques Tati. This, to me, is right out of American society slapstick. This is like, you know, the naked gun or something. That's what it reminded me of. She's
0: got like a machine
1: gun. (laughs) Yeah, and and then suddenly you gradually notice like, well, everybody shopping here has like firearms. Then he goes outside and there's just, you know, a couple pushing a pram and one of them's got like a bazooka and then you know somebody is getting out of a cab, goes up to the trunk and just takes out like, you know, two Uzis or whatever. The kind of scene it's very easy to imagine like Leslie Nielsen in.
0: There's a comparable like film fundraising scene where he's in some producer's office and he's chatting with gail garcia bernal in the lobby who plays himself
1: so this is the uh the mexican actor
0: that, that's right and and gail garcia bernal says to one of his friends oh this is elias Suleiman. you should check out his work uh, he, he's he's palestinian but his films are really funny <laughs> <laughs> and then probably the most political scene in the movie is he's in central park and he sees a woman a woman with sort of angel wings takes off her shirt and the palestinian flag is painted on her chest and then within seconds a squadron of police come and sort of chase her through the park yeah a
1: buster keaton ass chase scene occurs and eventually they they seem to catch up with her but by that point uh she's disappeared and you know most of the music in this film is kind of just you know atmospheric but this scene had a leonard cohen soundtrack uh which i thought worked very well there are a few other encounters uh, that he has towards the end of the movie. One which happens after he's, you know, picked up, uh, I don't even know what you call it, but when people poster and they cut the bottom of the poster with, and they put a phone number there. Oh, and he, he oh sure. I, don't, I just don't know what like that's called. Like babysitting services. Yeah, exactly. Call, yeah, yeah. But yeah. He, he pulls one for a tarot reading and the uh, tarot reader. Played by Stephen McCaddy. That's right. Canadian actor Stephen McCaddy decides to answer the question, will there be Palestine? And he says, uh, yep, absolutely. It's going to happen. Uh, but it ain't going to happen in your lifetime or mine.
0: Yeah, very convenient for a fortune teller to say that.
1: Yeah, those guys are always really good at tempering very precise predictions with extremely broad ones. It is its own kind of magic. Anyway, there's one other scene that I think is worthy of note. There's a scene where he's at, uh, it's like, I mean, there, there's two camera angles in the scene. One is him sitting on stage at some kind of, you know, very erudite, you know, New York film school or something. And the interviewer, this, you know, very solemn, dignified guy with a beard is sort of saying, how have you become, as we call it here, a citizen of the world? You know, has your love of all places eroded your sense of one place? Are you what we call a perfect stranger? And then the camera cuts the people watching at this like (laughs) New York film school. And again, this is some more like slapstick. They're all dressed in like weird costumes. There's one guy that's just like dressed as a carrot for some reason. Don't really know what's going on there, but it's very, very funny. And another good example of the way that this film's project and, you know, what it does so well is impressionistically explore kind of questions of identity, project a sort of a soft, gentle universalism, but in a way that's, you know, entirely uh, shown rather than told. Suleiman never speaks throughout this movie. He only observes. And it is in how people uh, address him and communicate with him that the film communicates with us. Closing
0: out the discussion on this film, which I really do recommend, I think I might read a little bit more from this profile in Heretz, which gets into how Suleiman sees himself as a filmmaker in relation to being Palestinian. The author writes, as he sees it, film is not a tool that allows for the sending of political messages, influencing positions or opinions or shaping awareness. That would be an illusion. I don't think cinema really did anything anywhere to anybody, he states. I don't think cinema can change the world. Now, it's obvious that maybe 50 years ago, cinema thought it had a role to play, but I don't think of cinema as a nationalistic endeavor. I mean, it's a complete contradiction. Cinema travels and crosses borders. Cinema is not supposed to actually put you in any kind of locale. When I make a scene in Nazareth, I don't make it about Palestine. I make something about the world. Nor does he feel especially committed to being part of Palestinian cinema, or indeed Arab cinema in general. I don't cater to other Palestinians or Arab films. I mean, people think that because I'm Arab, I was influenced. I never was. Why Arab films? I don't get it. Either it's a good film or it's not a good film, you know? So that's what he says in that article. Um, now, uh, he's he's sort of begging off being seen as a political filmmaker. Uh, elsewhere in the article, he notes that Haaretz is the only Israeli publication he talks to. So it's not like he's somebody without political convictions. And I think, you know, just, just watching the movie itself... There's, there's plenty of political content in it. Much of it is just indirect and non-didactic. One thing this movie is doing, though, is in that official plot synopsis where he goes to other cities and sees the relationship with Palestine, he wants to create something that crosses borders, that is international.
1: Yeah, let me present you to my very good friend, Elias Suleiman. He's a Palestinian filmmaker.
2: Nice to meet you. But
1: he makes funny films.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's doing a comedy right now about peace in the Middle East.
2: That's... Funny already?
1: It's called Heaven Can Wait.
2: Okay, Uh, sweetie, we're sort of late, so do you mind if we go now? Yes. Good luck with your film. Uh, It was a pleasure to meet you.
0: Well, thanks, everyone, for uh, listening this week. It's hard to look at the news and not feel kind of helpless and voiceless. So, I mean, for us, I think it was nice to just to just talk about what we've been seeing. And uh, I'm what can I say? I'm glad you folks are here listening to it.
1: Yeah. And if I can just uh, chime in here, it was very nice to see some of you in Ottawa last week at St. John the Evangelist uh, Church downtown where we officially launched uh, Seeking Social Democracy, the new book I've co-authored with Ed Broadbent and my colleagues, Jonathan and Francis. It was a lovely event. It was so nice of so many people to come out. And it was uh, particularly nice. I mean, especially fun for me for a number of you to come up during the book signing and say how much you liked the show. A few of you also said that during the Q&A, which I thought was very funny and led to the phenomenon of people who I'll say are not members of wills in my generation saying, Oh, you have a podcast off to check that out. If you're listening to this, and you found the show that way, I'm glad you're here. In some cases, I'm not sure the folks who came up if they're basing the podcast on the event itself, it might not be for them, but a very nice sentiment. Nonetheless, you know what people say to me at family
0: gatherings, they say, uh, th- this is older people, they say, So how are things going in the blog business? <laughs> And I say they're going very well.
1: Well, anyway, it was very nice. It was a very uh, special evening for me. Uh, Thanks to those of you who came out. Thanks especially to the one listener, a son of Oshawa, just like Ed Broadbent himself, uh, who I think is the only person who came to my book signing for The Dead Center and uh, to date has come to a book signing for Seeking Social Democracy. So here's to you. If you're in Toronto, we will be at the Reference Library this Sunday at 2 p.m. A few tickets are still available. Details can easily be found online. And if you're in Vancouver, we will be there on November the 1st at Vancouver Central Library. I hope to see some of you there, too. Well, what do you think, Will? Uh, is that about it for this episode? Yeah, I think so. Uh, we'll be back soon. See you soon, folks. I'll cut the duck.